Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, and I'm joined by my wonderful, wonderfully authoritative, knowledgeable, fair, and um, and brilliant Kirsten Korosek. I, I, I just take up the whole list. She didn't even bother saying Ed's name this time. I'm out of adjectives, so we also have Edward Niedermeyer. Hello, Edward. Hi, Alex. Good, good to good to talk to you again. And on this episode, uh, we have a, a wonderful guest. Um, we have. Um, Ali Kashani. He has a great title and a wonderful position at Postmates. His title is VP of Special Projects and Head of X. Uh, and the latter uh, indicates that he is the head of research and development for Postmates. So I love that that title, Ali. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. Why do you like that title so much? Well, Sorry. that brings us to the question of disclosure. Um, my title is Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, and full disclosure, uh, Ford uh, is one of the investors in Argo AI, and Ford also has uh, a very interesting uh, relationship with Postmates, which uh, our friend Mr. Kashani is going to tell us about. But is that where we want to start? Well, I should say, though, for full like transparency, you didn't even suggest Postmates. That came from me. So I don't even know. Did you even know? like? Were you even aware that we were talking and we wanted them to be on the show? Uh, no, although I was aware that they were going to be on the show. And I insisted that there would be disclosure up front. <laughs> but to be fair, between you and Ed, uh, uh, Ali is going to get such a uh, raking over the coals that <laughs> I probably don't even need to ask questions. Maybe I will be the one who comes in and, and rescues him. But, but uh, Ali, I heard that you don't need rescuing because you can handle yourself. We'll find out. <laughs> Let's just roll into it. Let's just begin. Right. Um, what? Uh, here's my question. What was Locks Inc., which you were doing prior to Postmates? Ah. Interesting first uh, question. Yeah, I actually um, was trying to solve what I call humanity's oldest uh, question, which is what should I eat next? So like, what's for dinner? Um, it's a personalization uh, startup in the uh, food space, trying to help people decide, uh, you know, what to eat. And uh, Postmates acquired that, uh, and the technology was eventually sent to uh, the uh, main app. And my focus shifted onto the robotics. And it was acquired after six months from the inception of Locks Inc. Yeah, it was pretty fast. <laughs> what did you have in six months that was worth acquiring besides your, your I'm sure, your amazing personality? So it was, it was really about alignment because I, uh, so at the time, I was actually an entrepreneur in residence at a VC firm called Pear in Palo Alto. And um, as I was getting this off the ground, I was also meeting with companies like Postmates because they could be partners for, for that startup down the line. And when, when I met with uh, founders at Postmates, Sean and Bastian, uh, there was just, you know, a lot of synergy because they had this interest in the robotics side. Uh, but at the same time, the work I was doing was quite relevant to, uh, you know, the needs of the company. And they also had all the data that you would need to create the technology I was trying to create. So it just made sense that if I really want to see that vision coming true, the best place to do it was at Postmates. Well, I've got more questions, but they're totally selfish. Ed and Kirsten, you want to take it away? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, what, how did you trans? What was that transition like the, then, from from Lock Inc. and then to then kind of transitioning to robotics? I mean, what was? Can you yeah. talk about that? Sure. So I actually uh, had a background in robotics. So I did my PhD in um, uh, computer vision, and I used lidar. Uh, 
a decade, over a decade ago uh, at this point, uh, I'm aging myself. But um, this is when, you know, nobody knew what LiDARs were. Um, so it, this is something that I was deeply familiar with. And then I started doing a bunch of startups uh, after uh, graduation. Um, so the biggest transition actually wasn't about the industry shift. It was about the fact that I was now part of a bigger organization. So, um, you know, up until now, I was always a co-founder. I was always in a startup that I, uh, you know, I was running here. I was coming in to join a much bigger organization, uh, you know, that, that I'd never been a part of before. So that was, that was a very interesting experience. A lot, a lot to learn. So I, I want to um, ask you about uh, uh, serve uh, your your sidewalk robot, but but first, um, sure. sort of before we heard anything about about that, um, you know, as as Alex mentioned, um, you know, Postmates was doing some experiment work with uh, uh, with Ford in Miami, um, and I'm just curious, sort of to, to the extent that you can share any of that, right? Uh, what, what did you learn, and, and how did that sort of inform uh, how Postmates thinks about? autonomy and, and where that fits in with your business? Sure. Uh, so for full disclosure, on my side, actually, my division is really focused on the sidewalk side of things. So that wasn't part of uh, something that I was very closely uh, working on. Uh, I can talk in, in general terms. Basically, when you think about on-demand delivery, it's a very multimodal uh, fleet it's not like uh, moving passengers when, you know, most of what you have is basically, you know, passenger cars and maybe you have some fancier cars. But in this case, you have people on foot, you have people on bicycles, you have people on motorcycles and, of course, cars. Uh, so each one of these types of fleet actually makes sense for certain types of delivery. Uh, and sidewalk robot makes sense for certain kinds of, uh, you know, the deliveries we have to do. And so do the self-driving cars. So you really want to look at the range of possibilities out there. Can you talk for a moment about the origin of not just the autonomous delivery strategy? Cause it, obviously there's, it sounds like there's two, there's, there's, you know, what, what Ed was referring to, and then there's the sidewalk piece. So how did that, um, was that just always in the back of the minds of the folks at Postmates that autonomous delivery was going to happen? Or was there a point, uh, a moment in time in which the company just said they, they had to pursue this? I think it's actually the easiest way to think about it is by looking at the data. And that's something that Postmates obviously uh, has the luxury of uh, having access to very unique data. Um, if you look at the entire on-demand market, about 90% of the uh, deliveries happen in cars. But in fact, more than half of them could be completed on foot, as in the short distance. So if you actually think about it, it's kind of funny that we are moving, a, say, two-pound burrito in a two-ton car. <laughs> so, you know, when you order that, that burrito, what's actually being brought to you, the energy, if you think about it in terms of energy consumption, all the energy is actually used to bring you a two-ton metal cage with stereo and airbag and six-speed transmission, uh, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and actually, I've done the math on this. If we remove all those meal deliveries off the street in the U.S., it's like removing one and a half million cars off the street in terms of CO2 emissions. So it just the way things are working right now doesn't make a lot of sense. And that that's kind of really explains the reason behind why this started. Why not just use then bike messengers then? Why go the robotics route? So I guess, you know, that's an interesting question. The truth is that when you, when, when we look at our fleets, most people like to do deliveries in cars. 
that's you know we don't necessarily get to uh, uh, dictate the terms of how people complete the delivery. Most people do it in cars now. In some environments, like in say New York, uh, in uh, New York City, where uh, you know uh, there's higher kind of traffic and parking issues, you do see a lot more utilization of uh, bikes. But in a city like LA, even though there, there is traffic, we actually see a lot more cars being used, even though uh, the distances are still pretty short. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a number of companies, um, in the sort of sidewalk, uh, well, in delivery bots generally, right. And there's, and there's different approaches within that. There's, there's ones that, you know, focus on sidewalk. There's ones that focus on bike lanes. Uh, there's even delivery bots, you know, um, for the road. Um, why, why did Postmates feel like it had to develop its own, uh, robotic delivery system rather than sort of partnering with one of these, these companies? It really goes to the, uh, you know, to some of the advantages that you would have when you uh, incubate something like this within an organization like Postmates. Uh, and first and foremost, it comes down to data. So we have access to really unique information. Um, and therefore, we can basically decide what to build and what not to build. You, you know, you, if you have to build this for a generic use case and you don't really have a clear uh, answer on who is going to be your primary user, uh, the way you make decisions and the decisions you make are going to be different than if you actually have a very clear customer, you understand the needs of that customer deeply, and you can really focus your energy on actually solving the, the most important problem first. So Postmates understood and you know, that the founders understood early that they can actually do this better than uh, relying on uh, folks outside who don't have the same kind of deeply ingrained understanding of the on-demand delivery space. So can you give some examples of, of how that, you know, Postmates experience and data has, has made your delivery bot different than, than others? Yeah, so uh, if you, um, actually, I'll, I'll take a step back. So one of the first things that I did uh, when we started this is uh, started to kind of familiarize myself uh, and my team with the data that Postmates has about uh, about delivery. So, you know, we can actually take a look at this yesterday. All the deliveries done in a city or in the entire country, we developed tools that take that uh, kind of historical data and create simulation of what would happen if you put a robot there. How many miles should it travel in a day? How many hours of battery life should it have? How much cargo space should it have? Um, So even something as simple as battery life, you could have a robot uh, that has too much battery and you could have a robot that has too little battery. And both of those are actually not ideal scenarios. If you have too much battery, it means that you're taking space away from your cargo, you have added weight. uh, And if you have too little battery, you run out of juice uh, in the middle of a peak hour. So we could actually make decisions about something even as simple as battery life by looking at the actual data, running it through our simulation and seeing how many miles did the robot travel that day? How many hours was it on the road? What was the utilization like? Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. 
Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So I live in New York City. In what universe do such robots get deployed on sidewalks? Or ever in lower Manhattan. Like, I just can't see it. I mean, which, yeah, well, and which you should, we should probably add that um, as for context here is that as far as I know, currently they're, they're not allowed in New York and that the mayor had quite an interesting reaction to FedEx's. Um, they, they had their robot out. I think for one day and it didn't go over very well. I mean, they were, they were basically sent a cease and desist well, no, no um, letter. Blasio, and I'm not sure he understands. The text. I, mean, <laughs> I absolutely believe that there is a use case for these delivery robots. Absolutely. Um, can that can, but how would they, how would they be deployed? I could see how an autonomous vehicle could be deployed in lower Manhattan because one could just, in theory, ban human drivers, uh, you know, eventually. But how would these delivery robots function in such an environment? Or are they not intended to? They are. It's just that the question is, what problem do you want to solve first? So mm. the situation you're describing in Manhattan, I, I believe you're referring to like the density of pedestrians on, on the sidewalk, correct? You have understood me perfectly, my friend. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the challenge that, uh, first of all, I guess when you're trying to create new technology, the first thing you think about is what is kind of the most uh, common situation rather than trying to solve for that kind of 0.001% of the situation, which is Manhattan. Mm. Like you don't, generally hear about a high density kind of sidewalk uh, problem. You know, that's a very, very unique problem to certain cities. So most sidewalks are actually underutilized. So first of all, we have this long kind of, um, you know, range of places we could be deploying this that this adds a lot of value to before we get to the harder problems like a city uh, that has that kind of challenge. But even when we get there, uh, I think there are a lot of ways this can actually work uh, quite uh, well. The challenge that we have to solve first is how do we get robots and humans to coexist in the same environment without, you know, robots becoming an impediment to, to human life, to pedestrians on the sidewalk. And, you know, people on the sidewalk come from a very diverse set of backgrounds and, you know, they're from every walk of life, every ethnicity, every language. So we have to incorporate that. Every, every kind of disability would, would exist there, right? We have to incorporate that once we have a chance to develop these kind of uh, tools, and I can speak to that because it's a very key part of our strategy. Uh, once we have robots that are able to kind of exist and blend into that mix, I think they're going to be fine, whether they're in Manhattan or in LA. So how do you achieve, how do you achieve that? Do you achieve that through regulation or is it just time? Time to basically retrain human beings to think of, you know, how to interact and walk on a sidewalk, something that is is sounds very simple, but actually is kind of ingrained in our social makeup. I mean, is it time or is it regulation? Is it the the or is this where is this where the partnership with Phantom Auto comes in? I there, you actually just touched on a lot of interesting things, so <laughs> I will take it one piece at a time. So uh, on the policy and regulation side, I actually think that um, there is a few things that we want to we are trying to do differently. But uh, at a high level, uh, if the public responds positively to these robots, 
long term, the regulation problem would be solved as well. As in, maybe I should state it the other way around. If public hates the robots, we know that regulation is going to come in and, and make a problem. But if we can at first make sure that the public actually has a positive reaction, we, we can then start having relations with the cities and regulators and, and educate them and, and educate the public and slowly make sure that this is an accepted form um, of transportation. Because again, when I, I, I've done this before, I've gotten in front of very critical communities and I've explained the use case and explained the whole, you know, uh, moving off uh, two pound, you know, meals in two ton cars. And the reactions that I get are almost universal. Once people realize that what we are doing right now is just so absurd, they want to become part of the solution. Now we're just going to make sure that we address their concerns, whether it's about safety or it's about, you know, how the robots could impede on uh, other types of road users. We can actually address those. We can show them that these are things that we're actually really spending time thinking about. And I think that that gets them to start working with us as opposed to have this negative reaction. And I have to say, it's pretty hard environment right now because startups in the past have taken a, you know, uh, ask for forgiveness uh, rather than permission approach. We are actually taking the opposite approach and you can see it in San Francisco and in some districts of LA. We are the only company allowed to operate because we've been engaging the cities up front and we've been telling them before we start putting robots on the streets. I, I see how you lay all the pieces out but in your view, maybe not just with Postmates, but you know, you're you're not the only company trying to do this. So, as you know, one company can do something that can ruin it for everyone else. So, if you put your forecasters hat on, how do you see this playing out? So, actually, this you touched on a really important subject. In fact, it's something that we always have seen as a responsibility we have uh, to the industry. There are other companies in this space. Uh, they're all startups, basically. We are the only uh, large uh, player until recently when Amazon and FedEx actually started playing in this until a few months ago. Uh, as far as we knew, we were the only other uh, player that actually was backed by a larger uh, firm. And we had the opportunity here to invest in uh, solving some of the human problems that I mentioned earlier uh, in, in the, you know, de- thinking about design, thinking about how robots actually would blend into the social fabric. And we, we have an incredible design team, actually, uh, that, that started early. This wasn't an afterthought. I, I uh, had a dear friend of mine that I really wanted to work with one day who lived in Barcelona at the time. I called him up and I said, hey, I want to ruin your life. I'm moving you back to San Francisco. So he joined to lead this team to basically create, to basically make sure these robots are accepted. That was his mandate. And our role in this uh, kind of industry is to share the learnings. So we, we, we talk about them in every interview, in every, every opportunity, every speech, because we want other companies to actually use the learnings that we are getting uh, about how to, you know, make robots that, uh, you know, uh, kind of respect people with disabilities, how to make robots that if someone is visually impaired can actually, uh, uh, you know, walk alongside of. So we, we want to be, be the ones who actually share this information so that others actually can take advantage of them. But you're absolutely right. There, that's a risk that exists here. If someone does something wrong, everybody pays for it. So, so you do have a partnership with with Phantom Auto, which is a, a teleoperation company, um, and I'm wondering, is that sort of an admission that that you kind of the that the the sidewalk is a dynamic and and sort of diverse enough place that sometimes you just need the the flexibility and adaptability of a human um, that sort of 
AI alone can't solve all of the challenges that you're going to encounter on a sidewalk? Uh, I actually say that's that's a strategy, not an admission. <laughs> we uh, we started uh, with a teleop robot within within uh, one week of starting this project. We had we had a robot that was being teleoped on the sidewalk, and we understood from the beginning that. Basically, the right way of building this is make it make a teleop robot and then make it autonomous over time. I say this is a strategy because one of the reasons this is so appealing is that we are solving half of the on-demand uh, market. We are addressing half of the deliveries by, you know, basically 1% of the cost of developing, uh, say, a self-driving car. And the reason for that is we can rely on this combination of human and machine intelligence. So rather than making autonomy that can actually deal with, uh, you know, nine nines uh, kind of reliability, deal with every uh, edge case that you can think of, we actually are able to, uh, you know, use people when robots can't solve a situation. And, you know, that's not a luxury you have on the street because cars are moving at 30 or 50 miles an hour and they're making millisecond decisions. They weigh so much. But on the sidewalk, you have, you're moving slower. You're, you have a much lighter robot, like 100 pounds. And you know what? It can stop at any point. If it can't make a decision, it just stops and it asks a remote human operator to help. So as long as we can get the robot to be 99% uh, autonomous, that 1% of the time, humans can actually help and we still get to better economics than uh, you know, uh, not using the robots. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you know, you've been allowed to operate. Uh, you're the only company that's allowed to operate in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, if you could just describe sort of a little bit of how you test and maybe sort of what are the special steps that you take that have sort of allowed you to have these besides, besides simply being proactive and engaging with the city, like sort of what are the, um, you know, safety measures or accessibility measures or things that you're doing, um, to foster that relationship and to make sure that, that they have, you know, there's confidence that your testing won't be something that will, uh, disrupt the sidewalk that will create accessibility issues for people with disabilities, that kind of thing. So um, there, there, there are multiple layers of safety, obviously. Um, and uh, be, when we first get into any new environment, uh, so let's say we go to a new city or even a new uh, part of a city that we've never been to, uh, the robots would be accompanied by a person who has a, basically a little button in their hand. And if they uh, decide that uh, they don't like what they see, they can stop the robot. But that's, that's kind of the first degree of safety, which we then over time remove. Um, and the second kind of uh, degree here would be the person who is uh, watching the robot remotely through, uh, in this case, Phantom uh, Autos technology. Um, so these people are basically monitoring the robots um, to ensure that everything that's happening is safe. And they can also intervene if there is any issue. Um, and then obviously the most important uh, piece that adds the most uh, value is the sensors and the software that's on the robot. Uh, we actually have uh, the you know the best sensor suit that there is on the sidewalk. We have uh, you know uh, Auster lidar on top. We have the ultrasound. We have uh, basically a set of sensors uh, to make sure that the robots are never coming in contact with anything or never leaving the sidewalk boundaries. When you first, you said that you, from the very beginning, teleoperation was was part of the strategy. My understanding is that you weren't necessarily always going with Phantom Auto, though. Did you first start by trying to create your own teleops? Yes. 
And feel free to name me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, we did. We, we, we started from day one. Um, and as I said, like within one week, we actually had a teleop robot, uh, out on, uh, on a sidewalk. Um, so one of the things that, um, we recognized uh, over a year ago was that the uh, industry as a whole, suddenly the, the self-driving car industry uh, suddenly kind of woke up to this reality that, you know what, maybe this technology isn't quite as ready as we thought. And I think the Uber accident and a few other things really turned the tide of kind of opinions. And some of the startups in this space who previously were really focused on going after car companies uh, started to realize they need uh, other partners first. And I actually took a step and I formed a team within my team uh, just to focus on technology partnerships. So the idea is if someone out there can get us to market, can help us get to market faster, we should be looking at it. And, and to do that, we needed to actually have a dedicated team because, you know, when you bring a new technology to your, uh, to your team, everybody's so busy kind of building your own technology that they're not going to spend time testing it. So we actually formed a team. And that team is responsible for some really interesting things, including, uh, you know, the LiDAR choice, including the, uh, the, the fact that we started working with Phantom. We tested a few technologies. Phantom showed us that they can actually get us to more neighborhoods and more areas than our existing technology, obviously, because they had more engineers spending more time on this one specific problem versus we had all these other problems to solve. So when we saw that, we decided that we would be using them. The way that was treated, um, that, that sort of development process, is that pretty much um, kind of how all of the pieces of this autonomous delivery puzzle um, occur within Postmates, meaning um, you sort of worked and iterated on some things in-house first, and then you sort of, you know, maybe hit a limitation or started looking outside, or is the Phantom Auto uh, example or the teller operations example sort of an outlier. I mean, does this give an indication of how things work within Postmates? So I think that the, the really, um, we, are, we are optimizing for one thing, which is how do we get to, uh, you know, commercialize this as quickly as possible? That's always been the goal. And there are certain things you can't really outsource. So we, we understood, for instance, hardware, it's something we have to build because it needs to be custom built for this problem. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, things we needed to add to this hardware from, uh, you know, its design uh, in terms of how it communicates pe- to people, to its size, to how much, you know, it carries, etc. It just didn't, it wasn't something we could rely on someone else to do. Uh, another layer of this was actually the autonomy stack itself. Uh, again, it wasn't something we could just, outsource it, it it was something that had to be a deep expertise inside the house so if we build a team we build the technology with certain other things like we would never go build our own lidar we would uh when it came to teleoperation again it was a very uh it was it was something that we wanted to not focus on because we wanted to build autonomy that's what <laughs> that's why we were here right so when we had this type of uh easily carved out uh modules and we could find a better partner that could get us to market faster that would that would that would be the strategy so one of, one of the things that's kind of given delivery bots a, a bad name um is a video of of just them getting stuck in various parts of the of the you know urban landscape, what? Um, and we know also from you know some of Ford's uh, experimentations in Miami that uh, you know because our urban landscapes were designed for humans, uh, sometimes small wheeled objects 
you know, there's a lot of areas that, that they can't even navigate, uh, particularly to get to the door. Um, how how is uh, Postmates thinking about about that challenge? Um, is sort of a a more human shaped or sized, uh, you know, or inspired robot um, something that you need to do to sort of uh, expand your capability into areas where you know a small wheel bot can't go, or um, or maybe how is this? You know, have you designed your your wheel bot to sort of handle more of these? How do you think about that challenge generally? Sure. Actually, <clears throat> so we spend a lot of time uh, developing our drivetrain. And if you um, you know put these robots side by side, you'll see that it's actually quite unique. We have larger wheels. We only have four wheels. We have this bogey mechanism that uh, basically means each side of the robot is – each basically the right wheels and the left wheels are moving independently. Uh, and what that means is we can actually deal with uh, a lot of different trains. The four wheels are always guaranteed to make contact to the ground no matter what the kind of situation and it can climb curbs that are much larger than you know any of the other robots can and again that goes back to the data that we had access to and you know what i was talking about earlier uh so that's one side of this which is we've we've looked at the data we've designed this to have the biggest reach it can but at the same time we don't have to solve every problem you know as i mentioned before we are not trying to uh, make a very generic kind of robot. Uh, in fact, you know, we understand that we are not replacing humans. We are, we are augmenting them. We are adding this as another, uh, you know, modality to our multimodal fleet. Therefore, we don't have to get to every door. We can understand what are the areas that we can get to and, and what are the areas that, you know, for us to get to, we need to go to the next level. Maybe it's uh, some, some kind of a, you know, legged approach or it's a drone uh, but historically, you know, we made wheels, but like 6,000 years ago or, 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 or something like that. I think a wheeled approach makes sense because it's just the most economical and simplest approach to get to most users. And then we can kind of start layering on top other, other locomotion kind of uh, methods. I'm curious though, about the, uh, I guess, human factors. So I have a friend who shall remain nameless. Who is it? Nameless. Okay. Well, it does not work at Argo or in self-driving. How about that? I lo- Alex, you do you do understand whenever anybody else says, I have a friend who remained nameless, you're always the first person to be like, name them. <laughs> right, so this guy, he's a guy. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> we're walking through DTLA and um, there is a security bot rolling through a shopping center. It's nighttime. And, his, and he says to me, he, like without hesitation, he's like, "We have to destroy it. We have to." <laughs> um, uh, you know. So, what what research have you have you done about, I guess, human factors or cultural factors? Like, what is uh, about about what kind of cultural shift has to change before? Because if there's even one guy in a neighborhood where these are deployed, let's say they're deployed successfully, they 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 work, the service works, the app works, they they do their jobs well, but there's what has to shift for people to culturally to not to want to have this weird knee-jerk reaction? Like, is it a question of time, messaging? You mean not to hurt them? Yeah. Yeah. Because even I am 48 years old. I work in the sector. I believe that these will be efficient and there's all kinds of societal benefits. But that nine-year-old punk kid in me just wants to kick it over. I can't stop myself. Why? What is it? You're mean. So, 
Okay, no, it's it's totally fair. The funniest thing is we get this in uh, we get asked this question a lot more than we've actually seen this situation in real life. I mean, like the ratio is probably like a hundred to one. <laughs> so um, I I think it's um, it requires us to uh, you know as designers and as as makers to factor that impulse into our design which I will speak to. And yes, there's always going to be a factor of time to adapt to change, but, uh, but it also requires us to educate people about the values of this. So let me, let me kind of go back. Um, as a, To me, there, there are multiple levels to this. So step one is how we design it. So rather than training people, I want to train the robots and make the robots in a way that people are less likely to want to harm it. And there are a lot of actual you know, research on this. There's actually a lot of ways to do this. Uh, for Serve, our robot, uh, we had a really simple mandate with the design. We wanted it to be familiar, but fresh, which sounds kind of paradoxical. Um, but let me explain what I mean by that. So I didn't want something that looks like a robot or some insect or something foreign to enter the sidewalk. So serve, if you look at it, it actually looks like a shopping cart, a mod- modern shopping cart, shopping cart 2.0 or a stroller. So it belongs to the sidewalk already. So you don't have that feeling that what the hell is this thing doing over here? But at the same time, it's really fresh and, and kind of dis- disarming. It, it, it charms people right away. The very first time you see it, it's very hard to hate that thing because it's designed uh, to look so friendly and fun and, and, and exciting. And that's the reaction we are getting right now. We have yet to have someone who got angry at, at looking at Serve. We had it with like former generations of our prototypes, but Serve has, has had a very, very positive reaction, which is by design. But that's step one. Um, step two is actually about making sure that this thing doesn't just benefit people who are on our platform, which are at the moment a minority of people, right? So Serve is going to see hundreds of pedestrians before it actually sees one customer. So how do we make sure that this adds value to the rest of society? So this is another aspect that we actually spend a lot of time thinking about. And if you think about these robots as a platform for uh, urban environments and not, not just a pizza mover, but if you have a robot within one minute of every point in your city, what would we do with it on top of, you know, doing deliveries? And there's a lot of interesting uh, ideas out there that we've been collecting from people and from uh, cities and, and municipalities. Like they have asked us, can it walk people to their cars at night? Uh, can it move uh, leftover food? So, you know, 30% of food in the United States goes to waste versus 10% of people are actually experiencing food insecurity. So what if these robots do an extra shift at night and pick up leftover food from restaurants and groceries and take them to people who need them? So if these things become part of the fabric of society and they start adding value to everybody, I think people are less likely to want to harm it. In fact, they would they would want to protect it if someone else is trying to harm it. So what else, What uh, of those ideas, I mean, what is Postmates thinking about? I mean, you know, it's early days, mm-hmm. but you must be thinking ahead of once eventually deploy, deployed, once you've solved a lot of these problems what these um, robots will also be able to be used for because it would help the business case of Postmates. So what's the most compelling? What's the one that has the best chance or 
few of them that have the best chance of um, being applied under the Postmates brand. So uh, obviously, you know, if as far as uh, use cases and, and business model goes, um, moving uh, on-demand deliveries is, is kind of by far the number one application. You also have applications for parcel and other goods like consumer goods. Let's say you buy some electronic uh, uh, thing that you want delivered right away rather than waiting for a day or two. Um, but the there's a host of applications that are not necessarily business related, uh, but they're, they're valuable for the cities. And again, as part of our effort to make sure that people find, find this, uh, or welcome these robots into their society and regulators do as well. We're also looking at those. One of them is actually related to, uh, collecting infrastructure data for cities. So, um, the, you know, there are not a lot of data about, say, accessibility. Where are ramps? Where are the uh, kind of appropriate uh, sidewalk width for people on a wheelchair? Uh, and where are not, uh, uh, you know, the right infrastructure for people on a wheelchair? This, this data doesn't really exist uh, very well in most places. And we are going to have to build these maps as we are, you know, deploying. So making those things accessible, even at a small scale in, in one area of a city would be valuable. Uh, and then certain things are only valuable when we have more scale, like, you know, moving leftover food, et cetera, that I mentioned earlier. So we are, we are trying to think about all these applications so that we design the robots for them. So by the time we get to that uh, kind of, uh, you know, scale, we actually have robots that can actually meet those needs. That's actually a really interesting idea. Like, a, a delivery bot as sort of almost an ADA compliance mapper. That's right. <laughs> right. Because, yes. you know, if it's, if it's not ADA compliant, probably the robot's going to have a hard time moving there. And so that's going to be the same stuff that would show up on, like you say, a map that you would need uh, anyway to begin testing. Exactly. That's actually a really interesting idea because I, I definitely know from experience, having been a caregiver for people in wheelchairs, uh, having a map on my phone that told me where there were ramps um, and where there was ADA compliant because the reality is not everywhere, not everywhere is, um, to be able to have that kind of map would actually genuinely be useful. So that's, that's really interesting. I also, I want to get really, really quickly back to something that sort of Alex was, was maybe touching on a little bit. Um, just because I, I was just, uh, uh, doing a road trip and I was listening to a book on tape and I, I heard this mentioned that, that, uh, a reference to an experiment in which, um, there was like a, 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 you know, coffee with like an honor system, a coffee machine with like an honor system uh, change jar. And that like when there was a picture of human eyes uh, uh, next to that coffee machine, people put more money in. And when there wasn't, they didn't. And like this is just one of a number of experiments that show that like even relatively crudely represented eyes, human eyes uh, really affect us in profound psychological ways. Um, were you drawing on some of that research when when you designed the bot, or was there some other reason you you put sort of representation of, of eyes on this? Oh, absolutely. No, the, that you, the, the eyes are there because we want uh, a kind of a sense of uh, agency associated with the robot. So when you look at something with eyes, especially when the eyes are able to emote and they're the you know uh, looking back, they're they're moving, they're blinking. It just changes the way you relate to that uh, object. So we, we definitely want to uh, use that so that we can create the language between people and robots, which I was referring to earlier. And also, you know, going back to Alex's question, um, what we are trying to do is reduce the number of uh, vandalisms and, and those kind of uh, incidents, which, by the way, again, as I said, we haven't had any. <laughs> but... We, just like everybody else, have the concern that maybe at scale this becomes an issue. So if we can reduce that to be 
only like the criminals, only people who uh, are, you know, into the habit of doing this kind of thing, rather than someone who is an average person walking by and just feels angry, right? So if we can just get rid of that negative reaction by creating uh, that sense of agency and, and humanity for these robots, we can actually solve uh, part of that problem. So I want to close with a couple of forecaster questions. What do you think is going to be accepted first by society? Del- autonomous delivery robots or autonomous vehicles? All things being equal. They're both available today. They're both, com- yeah. you know, wh- which, which one is going to be adopted faster? You know, I think um, if they were both available today, cars uh, have less of a gap, uh, you know, in terms of people's experiences. Uh, so if you are, uh, you know, a driver in another car, uh, you are just going to see uh, the self-driving car for the most part, just like any other car. It has a discrete set of actions. It, you know, it turns, it changes lanes. It, it, they're, they're all the same. And the language is the same. It uses the lights and, uh, you know, indicators, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think the gap is shorter there. But I do think the sidewalk is going to be part of society first, just because the technology is here today. And uh, with enough forethought, Again, we can make this accepted. And we're, again, our experience on the road is very different than the concerns that uh, we hear about because the reactions we get are just so overwhelmingly positive. So you answered my, you, you luckily answered my second question in the same breath, which was which one technically will come here first? And so you believe that the delivery robots, because, of it, because it's a simpler environment or, or what is it that allows, in your view, what is it that allows um, delivery autonomous delivery bots to be here uh, earlier? It's because it's um, it's not a simple environment. It's actually more complicated, but it's an environment in which we can rely on human intelligence more to uh, deal with the problems of you know the the, the, the long tail edge cases. Uh, basically, this robot is moving much slower. Uh, that it has a lot more time to think and process and run its algorithms. And then when it actually struggles to, uh, you know, answer a situation, it would just stop in its tracks. That's acceptable. In a, on a street, you can't just stop. You know, that's not an option. It could be dangerous for other people. Versus on a sidewalk, you can just kind of stop and let a human operator remotely come in and help. And as long as that happens infrequently enough, which is something we are already capable of doing, so our autonomy level is already far beyond the point in which uh, you know the economics of this actually work, uh, then we can safely operate these things uh, through that kind of combination of human and machine intelligence. You've been talking about about. Um, delivery as a, a multimodal problem, you know, a, a problem needing multimodal solutions, right? Lots of different kinds. Sort of um, what, and obviously I don't, you know, we don't expect you to tip your hand too much here, but but maybe just sort of generally at a high level, um, what are sort of some other, you know, broad concepts for for modes, for different modes of delivery that we haven't seen yet that, that we should keep an eye on or, or be prepared to maybe see a little bit in the future? That's interesting. I don't think I have one that that we haven't seen yet. I think there are a lot of uh, um, different areas that uh, different startups are, are are targeting right now. So you have you know from sidewalk to uh, to the street itself. Uh, I know you know some, some people in the middle who kind of go after the bike lane um, and then all the way to you know the air the the, the drones. So I don't I, I can't say that I actually have one in mind that no one has has started exploring. 
Um, but the question is, you know, which one of these bets is going to pay off? And obviously, you know where my money is at. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for joining us on the Atonicast. And I mean, I think that there are two things I'm most looking forward to is, you know, really seeing commercial, like widespread commercial deployment, and then also to find out if Alex is going to kick any one of these over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I get, I get, I get a a single laugh. That's good. You know, thanks. Tough crowd. Guys, uh, luckily we have two amazing journalists here um, (laughs) that I don't need to brush up against you know, ethical professional boundaries to get uh, Ali to talk interestingly. Right. Well, great. So. Well, thanks, I, Alex. I hope you approve. <laughs> and um, Ali, thank you again for coming on. Um, we'll leave the show here, but we'll let you give the final words, which is um, what should we be watching for in, in the future when it comes to autonomous delivery with Postmates? Hmm. Interesting. All this right. is where you tell us what's going to happen next and all your secrets. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought we were just talking about it for 45 minutes. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, you know, for us, we're very, very focused on, uh, you know, uh, getting these robots <clears throat> to scale. We RDR in uh, Los Angeles right now where customers are receiving deliveries from the robots, which is really fun to watch just their reactions and, 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 and you know, how... Uh, the public is reacting to serve. Um, and, you know, the, uh, for us, the next step is just getting this into more cities and, and in front of more people. Um, I think it does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, can we, are we going to see um, more deployments, for example, or a new, a new next generation robot? Is that going to happen in the next year or so? So next year is all about deployments. And uh, obviously, you know, like most uh, technology products, you're always working on the next generation uh, at the same time. So we have, we have a product map, roadmap, and we have, you know, ideas for where we want to take this next, uh, whether it's about uh, making robots that can do more things uh, or can, uh, you know, uh, apply to different applications in delivery. Uh, but for now, then in terms of short-term focus, it's all about getting this to more cities. Great. So, so besides uh, Kirsten's excellent coverage at, at TechCrunch, um, if there's a place, um, you know, people want to sort of follow, you know, uh, developments in what you're doing, um, see what what happens, when, uh, what's happening, when it happens. Uh, what's what's a good place for people to maybe follow you on social media or a website? Sure. Um, so, if you go to serve.postmates.com, there's a, a website and a mailing list there. Um, that would be a good place. Great. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on to the Atonicast and to our listeners. We'll see you again next week. Awesome. Thank you so much. 